0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our assistant pastor, Jeff Buck. Hey, good evening. I'm pastor Jeff Buck. I am filling in here at Calvary Monterey for the Tuesday night Bible study for our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge, who was out taking some well-deserved time away. So I will be leading you for four successive Tuesday evenings beginning tonight. And I'm going to do a study through one of the books I just love to teach whenever I have a chance to do so. And that is the New Testament book of Colossians. It is an amazing book. It's the most Christ-centric, Christ-centered book, I think, in the New Testament, other than, of course, the Gospels. And it's a a fabulous read. And so some of the things that I'll share with you as I get into the background of it so that we have some context for this uh, study is, uh, for me personally, I found myself a few months ago in my own morning devotions, along with other portions of Scripture, I just find myself reading through the prison epistles, uh, Ephesians, uh, Philippians, and Colossians. I've tacked on Galatians because I just love it. And so one of the things I'm doing is I'm constantly reading through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians and preaching from those when I have a chance. And I guess as I get it deeper and deeper in me, I get more and more excited about sharing the truths with other people. The sharing of God's word produces faith and faith causes us to live at such a higher level. So I'm really enjoying reading this most Christocentric book. One of the things that's interesting about Colossians and a little more on when it was written and so on in a moment, is that Paul uses here 55 Greek words, the original language uh, of the New Testament being Koine, street level Greek. 55 words occur in this epistle that do not occur in any of his other writings. So it's a unique book that he's using and employing unique vocabulary for. Uh, So some of the uh, words that don't occur otherwise in his writings, for example, in chapter one, verse 12, where it says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance with the saints. That word, qualified, doesn't occur elsewhere. Also in chapter uh, 2, verse 4, he he mentions, I say this to you in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And uh, some versions say fine-sounding arguments. That word fine-sounding doesn't occur in other uh, books of uh, Paul's. He speaks in chapter 2, verse 8, he uses the term empty deceit. And again, that's unique to this particular epistle. And I love chapter 2, verse 14, where he is speaking of Christ's perfect fulfillment of the Mosaic Old Testament law. And we read in chapter 2, verse 14, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. And then it says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That word, uh, phrase, record of debt, unique to this passage. And here he is uniquely recording the fact that is Christ had lived the perfect life and then died the vicarious sinner's death. The record of debt, the, the Old Testament laws that uh, were against us because we just perfectly, didn't perfectly fulfill them, uh, it's it's as though he nailed the law to the cross with himself as part of his perfect sacrifice. And finally, uh, a word and a concept that occurs here that is occurring nowhere else is in uh, chapter 2, verse 18. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions he's seen, That word asceticism, which just means severe self-discipline, treating the body roughly, avoiding every kind of indulgence at all, which is so contrary to the doctrine of grace. That word translated asceticism doesn't occur anywhere else. And you see these five examples of a vocabulary that's so different from Paul's other writings because this is a most unique book. And I think the effect in reading it, if you read Galatians, you experience freedom. Ephesians, you gain an understanding of my position and place in Christ. Philippians, you gain an appreciation specifically of the sacrifice of Christ. But in Colossians, My own opinion and my own experience is, it enables you to fall in love with Jesus anew and afresh. Because it is, especially in chapters one and two, it's just such a beautiful exposition of all that Christ is, what he does, Christocentric, as theologians call it. The effect of reading it, I believe, is to refresh your relationship, your love relationship with Christ. The book is written in typical Pauline fashion. The first two chapters are, this is the same with Ephesians. Uh, the first two chapters are what Christ has done. And so we'll be starting there. And then chapters three and four, what do Christians do now that they have seen who Christ is and what he's done? And I think Paul is, is so wise in his approach here. Because it's important to know who we are before we handle what we should do. To work out of our new nature, being should lead to doing. Because we we know that grace has changed everything for us. We do not serve to gain God's acceptance. We have God's acceptance. So the good works are like our thank you out of this new heart, new nature that we've been given, it's our thank you to God. It's why I love to recommend, because of that theme of grace, uh, Pastor Chuck Smith's book, Why Grace Changes Everything. I think I've read it seven times now. Why Grace Changes Everything. Pastor Chuck Smith, such a, a, a great picture of, of grace. So, a little more technical here now. The purpose behind the writing of Colossians, besides, of course, bragging on the Lord Jesus, was to combat an unnamed but growing heresy in the church at Colossae, which uh, some people uh, label syncretism. It seems that in uh, the city of Colossae, that Christians were kind of cobbling together other popular doctrines or teachings or philosophies and putting it together into a a new form of belief that was just not purely Christian, syncretism. And so that's why I think he goes immediately in chapter one into who Christ is. Having us look at the real, the real guy, the real man, the real God-man, before we get into uh, the error. Looking at what's real, especially in 1, 13 through 20, we have this beautiful picture of who Christ is. And so Paul is wisely laying the foundation of who Christ is before he addresses some of the erroneous teaching. What, What do you see as you analyze the book is there are three elements that seem to be woven into this new unnamed doctrine. Possibly it's an early form of the Gnosticism that uh, really took root in the second century. But number one, legalism. Man-made religion with man-made rules. For example, in chapter 2, verse 20, he says, why is if you were still just a worldly person, are you uh, obeying human rules? And And he mentions rules like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Legalism creates all kinds of don'ts, all kinds of, well, be careful of that, and don't do that, and don't go over there, and don't have your hair too long, or do short, or watch what you wear. Just a lot of rules that um, we call legalism, man-made rules that just take the joy out of this grace in which we stand, Romans 5.1, that take away your joy. So easy to just make rules. I, I remember being in my beloved Bulgaria, in Eastern Europe many years ago, and uh, there were different churches that you'd go to, and they had different rules that it had instituted about dress. And in some places you were supposed to have uh, wear a tie, and others not wear a tie, and women have this kind of dress or that kind of dress. And I remember being in a place one day where uh, ties were forbidden. And I, I said, well, that's interesting, okay. Uh, why are you not in this particular church supposed to wear ties? And he said, well, it's simple. A tie has the point at the bottom and it's pointing to hell, pointing down to hell. And we do not want that. And I remember thinking inwardly, that's legalism. That, 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 you're, you're no better off if you wear the tie or if you don't. Legalism, man-made religion, with man-made rules. It's, it's so easy to substitute things like that for Christ. Secondly, asceticism, I already mentioned that. Uh, severe discipline of the body. In in 2.18 and 2.23, he uses that word uh, unique to um, this particular epistle. And he says an interesting thing, I think it's in the 2.23 passage. Severe treatment of the body has no value in curbing fleshly indulgence. In other words, if I beat myself literally, as some of the Catholic fathers used to do, if I starve myself, if I treat myself um, roughly and think I'm going to bring my body under subjection because it's so evil, the Bible doesn't teach that your body is evil. It just teaches the fruit of the spirit of self-control. But not this uh, asceticism, where people were required to sleep on the floor or or, or whatever the the rules uh, were made. The idea being, it'll make you a more holy person if you're really rough on yourself. And Paul says, no, it's got to be about grace. It can't be about asceticism. And a third thing, which I have encountered certainly, a legalism, asceticism, and then mysticism. Visions that become authoritative and directional. That, that would be my definition of it. Visions and therefore belief systems become authoritative and directional. And in 2.18 it says, this person is going on in detail about visions and puffed up by his sensuous mind. I've known several different people who are highly visionary and developed a system of beliefs predictions for the future that they offered to the church to conform to based upon visions they'd had rather than most definitely making the Bible the accurate standard. I'll listen to what anyone says, I guess, uh, as far as feeling like they've had a vision of something. But um, it can't be mysticism. It cannot be something where we find ourselves adding to the Bible or replacing the Bible with a vision direction that comes from a person. Visions are valid in Acts chapter 16. Paul has a vision in the night about uh, leaving uh, Turkey in the city of Turas and transitioning over to uh, Philippi in uh, Europe. And so the gospel was directed from uh, one continent to another by a vision. But that was always subjected to scripture and what the other team members said, and it wasn't that they was always led by vision. Uh, the author, it says, is Paul, and it says in this first verse, Paul and Timothy are brother. And I've always wondered, what was Timothy's contribution? Did Paul um, just put his name in here for, uh, for show? Uh, was Timothy a valid Participant in the developing of these words, uh, was he mentioned because he was faithful there to Paul? Um, we don't know, but it's not just Paul; it's Timothy, our brother. And it's sixty A.D. Paul has been taken to prison in Rome. We know the whole story of Acts twenty-seven and twenty-eight, and Paul is imprisoned in Rome A.D. Uh, sixty. And he's writing Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon from this prison cell. And when you, you read and you absorb the depth of what Paul is saying and his doctrine and his exhortations and all of that, you're just thinking what this man did uh, in prison, in prison in Rome. He was not under the circumstances he was positioned in the heavenly places in Christ, as Ephesians uh, has taught. And he uh, lays out this beautiful study that we're going to venture into today. So, Paul and Timothy are the authors. It's AD 60 in prison. Uh, he's writing to a, the city of Colossae in southwest Asia near Laodicea, one of the seven Revelation churches. Not a major city, it was actually a city kind of in decline, uh, known for its wool black-covered wool wool from sheep. But um, a a city that Paul had not been to. It had been apparently uh, founded by Epaphras, who was uh, from that city, um, was a a disciple of Paul. And while Paul was was living in uh, Asia, in uh, Ephesus, apparently Epaphras went back to his hometown, founded the church. The church seemingly met in the home of a rich man named Philemon, and we know uh, the epistle written to him about his slave, Onesimus. And so uh, it met in a home. And it's, it's kind of fun to picture these early Christian churches meeting in homes. One home, one large home, multiple homes. But these people, kind of like them against the world, a, a small but growing, of course, movement. And they meet in homes. So therefore, their brothers, their sisters, they eat together, they live life together, And uh, they don't have until, I think, the third century, these church buildings that we know of today. So the church met in a home. Basic themes that I see in Colossians. uh, Number one, big theme, Christ is God. Christ is God. We see uh, this in 1, 13 through 20, and in chapter 2, verse 9, that Christ is divine. Christ is a member of the Trinity. Christ is God. And there were belief systems that would incorporate Jesus as a good teacher and so on. And Paul said, no, 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 no. Christ is God. And I always find that not a shocking statement, but a great reminder that when I'm dealing with Christ, I am dealing with God. And then the second theme is Christ is Chapter 1, verse 18 Christ is the head of the church. The church does not have a human head, Big C Church, the worldwide church. It is led by the Holy Spirit, but under the headship of Christ. And so Christ calls the shots, if I could put it that way, in the church. He is the head of the church. And so we must always. Be careful to submit our programs, our direction, our vision to Christ. He is the head of the church. So Christ is gone. He's the head of the church. And the third theme, which is unique to Paul, I think, in Colossians 1.27 and 213, this wonderful statement that just bowled me over the night I got saved and I heard this. Christ will live in you. Christ will live in your heart by faith, Ephesians 3. Christ will live in you. That blew me away. That Christianity was not attending a church or just reading the Bible or um, whatever, but that when I invited Christ into my life, I was literally inviting him into my body, into, into, into me, and to live inside of me and grab the steering wheel of my life and that intrigued me. I was interested in that. Not just rules and regulations, but Christ in you was a revelation distinctive, of Paul. And finally, chapters 3 through 4, because Christ lives in you, Christ will live through you. Christ will teach you in chapters 3 and 4 all the practical things of uh, being a husband, uh, wife, father, master... A servant of God, Christ will live through you. So it's a masterpiece that I'd like to then spend a little time going through with you, chapter one today, and then a successive chapter on the successive weeks until we have spent these four weeks together in Tuesday Night Bible Study. So I've been going through Colossians actually with a, uh, a guy I'm mentoring, and we all notice after the different... Pauline epistles, a very similar greeting each time. Colossians 1:1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And you'll see this is a standard greeting: this last phrase, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Ultimately, grace comes from God, peace comes from God, and grace and peace move together. When you live by grace, you're at peace. And when you are at peace, it shows that grace is moving in you. And this is not just an empty wish, just because he didn't know what else to say to get started, but he wishes on these brothers and sisters, his brethren, I wish you grace and peace which come from above. He introduces himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He states his credentials in the first sentence. I'm an apostle, which just means a sent one. He is one that his whole life never had a, a home of his own. He had a home church in Antioch, but he was always going out on two or three year sojourns, and just wasn't a resident uh, minister. That would be an elder or a pastor who was a resident person. But the apostolic ministry, by definition, was always on the move, and the heart of it is to go where no one else has gone and to extend the kingdom of God into new arenas. You know, the heart cry is, everyone needs to hear about christ and he says it's by the will of god he always indicated in his writings that he didn't call himself but this was something sovereignly done by the will of god and i think that's what kept him going was the fact that he knew he was in god's will as he went through about 30 32 years of apostolic ministry and timothy our brother one of the great things about Paul is he always worked in a team. Almost never did Paul do anything alone, but he had as many as seven or eight people traveling with him. Paul was highly relational, and he was, had an open hand and an open heart to people uh, working with him. And he said, Timothy, my brother, our brother, is involved in this letter, and then grace and peace. It's interesting, though, in verse two, it says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. When I read that, I think of all the faithful brothers and sisters that I've known. And this is our call. It's to be faithful. It's not to be flashy, but to be steady and consistent and unmoved and to continue on until the finish line. I I find myself thinking... In these latter years of mine, I just turned 67, about the ultimate finish line. When I hear that voice or that call or whatever it is, and I'm taken out of my body, and I'm, I've crossed the finish line, and I am intent to finish well. And so the faithful brothers in Christ, a great compliment. And now let me read a few verses. Verse three, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, remember I said he had not been there, and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world is seeing and bearing fruit and increasing as God's word also has done among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, he's going to repeat this now, we have not ceased to pray for you, Asking that you may be, and look at the prayer that this veteran apostle is offering for this church. I mean, this is wonderful. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as, why, we praying this triad, I'll talk about in a moment, to be true in your life. So that you may live in a manner, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Beautiful verses. We always thank God, verse three, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, when we pray. And I'd like to say that to everyone. Don't don't let it be in your daily life. If you pray, make it when you pray. And how wonderful that they were included in Paul's probably extensive prayer list. When we pray for you, since we heard... Now notice the faith, hope, and love theme that occurs several times in Paul's writings. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Faith, hope, and love abide. These three, the greatest is love. Watch for that here. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. He's praying that they will walk, and he's heard that they're doing this, that they will walk with faith in Christ Jesus, faith, love for all the saints, presumably all in Colossae and and other places, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You couldn't have a a better tripod to to put yourself on than faith, hope, and love. I pray often for myself that I will walk in faith, hope, and love as a a prayer request for myself. And this is what Paul prayed for the church at Colossae, uh, that they'd have faith, hope, and love, which just makes a supernatural atmosphere that anything can happen. And I love that word hope. Such a great theme uh, of Paul. Hope is laid up for you in heaven. When I think about heaven and I think about my going to heaven, it gives me hope. No matter what my present circumstance is, I have hope for the future. The Greek word hope, elpis, which means a high expectation of future good a constant expectation of future good so he's praying for their faith hope and their love and then he says in the middle of five of this you have heard before in the word of truth and notice he calls the uh, preaching of the gospel he calls it the word of truth the gospel which has come to you as indeed in the whole world that is bearing fruit and increasing. It's really amazing that from nothing in 30, 33 AD, the gospel after the resurrection of Christ and his ascension, the gospel just explodes through the Roman Empire through all kinds of means, which I don't have time to go into. But it was a time that uh, Roman roads and Roman peace allowed the gospel to just... Um, go everywhere. And very often, if you trace Paul's steps, he is going on main Roman roads built for Rome, but also for God. And so the word of truth, the gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. That's so true. When the gospel comes, it always bears fruit. There are practical changes in who we are and what we do, and how we behave. And we just call it fruit. Fruit is something that grows naturally. And so do all of these new things begin to take place in as naturally as we believe the word of truth. We find ourselves saying, well, I can't say that. Well, I can't do that. I can't go there not because of legalism, but because of the fruit that's changing us inwardly from the inside out. And so it's in the whole world bearing fruit and increasing, partly because of the apostolic ministry, always wanting to go to the next place and bring the gospel to new places. As it also does among you since the day you heard it, and notice this next phrase, and understood the grace of God in truth. If you analyze that, Paul is saying the bottom line of this gospel is you got to understand the grace of God in truth. The true grace of God is what comes to us in the good news of Jesus. The gospel is Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. And he places grace inside us. A sense of God's grace toward us, and it then releases grace and ability in us to say and be and do things we never could before because we have, and we're still unpacking this, understand the grace of God in truth. I do like that word truth because truth is truth. And Paul was a, a real stickler for what's true. And uh, we have to be like that today. Just in verse seven, as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Paul often uses the word beloved. He was so relational. He was so loving. He could be stern. He could be corrective. But man, he loved people. Our beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. It would be interesting if uh, Epaphras was in a meeting when this was read, and he heard these words about himself. But wouldn't you like to be like this, to be a faithful minister of Christ and making known the love of the Apostle Paul? And it's interesting, he says, he has made known to us Your love in the spirit. Epaphras has told us, Paul, we love you. Paul, we're committed to you. Paul, we're for you. And love means everything to people in ministry. People in ministry are never perfect. We make all kinds of mistakes. But one thing that Epaphras did is when he came back to Paul, he said to them, they love you. They're for you. They're committed to you. And he says in verse nine, and so from the day we heard of what's happening in you and that you love us and are interested in us and you care for us, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled. Now notice the three words here that you may be filled. I love that verb there. Filled with three things. The knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. If you have knowledge, wisdom and understanding, you are set. If you have the knowledge that you need, if you have the information that you need, if you have the facts that you need, if you study something and you find out all about it and you have knowledge, it just simply means it's gonna show you the knowledge of God's will. And the, the, the more I study and the more I learn and the more I seek knowledge, the, the clearer I get about God's will for my life. The knowledge of his will in wisdom. Wisdom is direction. And uh, understanding is seeing how everything fits together in a situation and properly analyzing a whole situation. Seeing the big picture. Wisdom is directional. It's what do I do with the knowledge and uh, understanding? How do I apply it? Where do I go? And so he's praying such profound things. Uh, Church at Colossae, may you have knowledge, spiritual wisdom, and understanding. Man, what a thing to pray for someone else. And if I know Paul, this was a regular prayer that actually took place. Why am I praying for these three important things? Verse 10, so th- as, as you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I love that word worthy. To walk and live in a manner worthy of the Lord. Sometimes when I am around someone and, and they, they act in such a way that I think is kind of beneath them, I will say to them using my own words, you're a better man, or you're a better woman than that. You're better than that. In other words, what you're doing now, it's not worthy of you and who you are and not worthy of the Lord. So he's concerned that they walk in a manner that's worthy of having the Lord in their life. And the next phrase, fully pleasing to him. Imagine being fully pleasing to God. I mean, God will always love you and care for you, but imagine being fully pleasing to him to be able to know that I please God, that he's joyful about what I'm becoming, where I'm going. Those of you who are parents know the importance of communicating to your children how they please you, what they mean to you. You just can't wait for your kids to be perfect. Um, You've got to love them and enjoy them as they are. And that they please you. That you're grateful that they're alive. Grateful that they're, they're around. Fully pleasing, though, to God. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice that balance there. Bearing fruit in my work, and increasing in knowledge. So there's always the studying, but then there's the doing. There's always the growing in knowledge, but not just that, not just sitting around getting you know, fat and happy, but it's, it's doing something with it, bearing fruit in every good work. You know what's interesting? You, you have more knowledge when you work. And as you're working, you learn more things. And those two things going together, the being and the doing that I mentioned before. And these these people were really doing that. Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So those first 10 verses are just marvelous. Now let me read 11 through 14. Here's Here's again the prayer. He just can't stop praying. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has... Great sentence here. He has delivered us. That includes you. He has delivered us from the domain or authority of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I mean, you could write a book on those three verses. Amazing. Uh, Four verses. Amazing. May you be... Now, notice the words here. Notice his verbs. May you be strengthened with power according to his might. Strength and power and might are gifts of God. Uh, yeah, we should eat right and exercise well and so on and so forth, but He's He's praying that you can be strengthened with power from the might that comes from God. I know for me, the older I get, the more I find myself, as my body is not the same at age 67 as it was at 27, but I can depend upon the strength and the power and the might of God. So many times I find myself doing when I'm really tired, some of my best work. Uh, I actually have um, a sheet of 23 verses that all talk about strength, which comes from God, 23. And once in a while, I just run through those things in my quiet time and appropriate strength to do God's will at His level, strengthened with power from His might. And what does that? What do those three things produce? In in uh, the end of that same uh, verse eleven, for all endurance and patience with joy. Joy is such a, a key element of the Christian life. Joy is the second of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. And he says, for all endurance and patience with joy. Endurance and patience, st- stick to sticking with things, not quitting, continuing to go no matter how you feel. It can be, you, you can picture that as being kind of, kind of a drudge, kind of a pain. But he said, if you're strengthened with the power and the might of God, your endurance and patience can be met with God's joy. I've been a pastor 48 plus years now, and it's been the joy that I appropriate every day because I depend upon the strength and power of God that's kept me happy and enthusiastic about ministry, even when difficult things have come my way you know, many times. But he says what can happen to you is you can have all endurance, all endurance, whatever that situation is that you're facing, whatever mountain you have to climb, whatever relationship difficulty may be in your marriage or your parenting or your, your, your job, all endurance and patience with joy. And one of Paul's themes next, giving thanks. Man, Paul is big on that. I have tried to learn from Paul and the many times he talked about giving thanks to be a person that gives thanks always. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. And the word inheritance is so wonderful. And it shows us that it's not because we earn all the wonderful things that are gonna happen to us in this life and the next, but he has simply qualified us because we are in Christ to have a wonderful inheritance like all the other saints in light. Inheritance of the saints in light. I I don't even know how to exegete that phrase. There's just something about when we live in an obedient fashion with Christ, we discover more and more truth. We have more and more amazing supernatural experiences that we don't deserve, that we didn't earn. And, you know, some of my worst days, I've seen some of the most incredible miracles happen and realize, well, it's just my inheritance. It's just a thing that God has given me because I'm a son of God giving thanks to the Father because he's qualified me in Christ to share with all the other saints this inheritance. And that that word light. I can remember before I came to Christ at 16, what a dark cloud there was over my life. There was not only no joy, there was just uh, a lot of darkness. And then when I came to faith, I've learned that Faith is best lived in the light with community, transparency, sharing, because of this wonderful inheritance that I have and you have as much right to the inheritance as I do. This wonderful inheritance given to us because we are sons of the Father. And one of the Best verses, 13, he has delivered us from the domain or exousia the authority of darkness. You have been delivered. You don't, you're not subject to Satan. You're not subject to the evil dark world. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us where? Into the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus is King. He has come to establish the kingdom. And then one day in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, 25, after everything is subjected on this world as, as He is reigning as King, He turns and gives it all back to the Father that God may be all in all. But we are part of a kingdom. Make no mistake about it. God is determined to rule completely everyone and everything. But we have been taken out of the old kingdom, which was Satan's kingdom, where there's darkness and oppression and, and addiction and all those things. We have been transferred, transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. I didn't realize that the night I gave my life to Christ when I was 16, I was being transferred. I'd been in one kingdom. I didn't realize he'd be being transferred into a whole other kingdom, which has... A whole different culture. Kingdoms have cultures. Every, every kingdom, Britain for example, uh, was a realm of a king, a kingdom. And it had its own particular culture, so different than America. And our life as believers is so different than the life we had under the old kingdom. We have a king, our king is Jesus, and our father is the God and Father of Christ. You've been delivered from that old domain into a new one. Why? In verse 14, in whom, in the Son, we have redemption. We've been bought out of. We've been set free. Uh, the, the ransom for us has been paid. And what was it? The forgiveness of our sins. If our sins are forgiven, Satan has no rule over us. If we have been washed and cleansed and, and uh, made new, we can be in the kingdom of God. And what a king our God and Jesus are. Then we get into some of uh, verses here, 15 through 20, which uh, one author said is, is high Christology. And this is a beautiful, technical view of the Lord Jesus. And you you read these few verses, it's phenomenal. Speaking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, Christ, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, watch this next sentence, all things were created through him, Jesus, and for him. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head, Christ, of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's why we say Jesus is Lord. You would get in a lot of trouble in the Roman Empire walking around saying Jesus is Lord because the emperor was supposed to be your Lord. And that got an awful lot of people killed because they believed in everything Christ should be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I mean, it's a, it, that's a huge sentence as Paul is writing this or dictating this. It's huge. He is Christ, the image of the invisible God. Image, icon, Sometimes it's translated statue. Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. God is real, but he's invisible. He is a a, a spirit. He does not um, show himself in this earthly visible realm, but he had his son become a man. All the fullness of God still dwelling in him, And Christ is the the statue, the image, the symbol of what God is like. And Jesus was very clear. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. When you see how Jesus was, how Jesus operated, what he did, what he didn't do, he's the image of God. He represents God fully. So we know who God is because of Jesus. He's the firstborn of all creation. He is... The, as it were, in, a, in in a family, he was like the eldest son, the firstborn, the oldest, the the one who has all the the uh, power and all the authority um, underneath the father. And when the father died, he would become the ruler of everything. He's the firstborn of all creation. That may also be referring to his resurrection, for by him, and this is what they call high Christology, that. Paul reveals here that it was Christ that actually did the creating of all things, God creating through through Christ, for by Christ all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth. Notice there are things on earth that are created and there are things in heaven that are created, and Christ is the is the the craftsman that has produced all these things, whether they're visible or invisible. And it's important to say that there are invisible things that are things. They're real. We just don't see them. But there really is a throne of God. There really is a new Jerusalem being prepared in heaven. There really is uh, angels and and born again, spirits made new. There is real things. We just don't see them. But Christ is beyond and behind all of this. Thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. How many thrones and dominions and empires have come and gone in this world? All of them were created through Christ. He is the one that is ruling history and they are created for him. Jesus, under the authority of God, has used every authority that's come through this world, not that every one of these authorities in these uh, countries have done the will of God but but Christ has his hold on all the the nations that come and go because he actually has created history he's behind history because it says all things were created through him and for him Christ is is using history is using even Countries and powers that don't uh, acknowledge him, he is using them in some ways we don't understand, way above us, they're for him. He is before all things. So in other words, as is, is part of the eternal God, he is before every created thing, he was existed before. And in him, all things hold together. As I understand that, this creation, which when we look at it, is so orderly and, and Uh, predictable, uh, it's being maintained by Christ. He is holding it together, maintaining it, and he is then the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. I love that. He's the first one that came back from death. He was not subject to death as being God the Son, But as being the son of God who came to earth, he subjected himself to death. And so he has been through death and went ahead for us. So that's why we don't fear death, because Christ has already done that. And we know that the moment we die, uh, we meet angels, we meet Christ, we meet this heavenly realm. He is the firstborn from the dead. Thank God he's not still in the grave. He rose from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's another unique word here. That in everything he might be preeminent. That's why we say Jesus is Lord. And the day will come when everything is subjected to Jesus, Philippians 2, and then every knee bows to him. Why? For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He is the God-man. And it's interesting here, the, the Greeks and the people of this age did not believe that um, a man could be God or God could be man. They, they didn't believe that there could be a God man. You're either a man or you're a God. And this is uh, Paul's way of saying in Christ, the man, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And the Greek word there dwell means permanently. So Jesus will permanently be the God man. And then through him, God reconciles to himself all things because our world is unreconciled to God. Our our world is in rebellion against God. And so Jesus came and by the blood of his cross, he has provided a way that we can be reconciled to God. It's a wonderful thing in life to not be at war with God, to not be trying to arm wrestle with God. Through Christ, we are reconciled to God and and all things are potentially reconciled to God. He made peace by the blood of his cross. And whether it's earth or heaven, the blood of Christ reconciles people. And then he goes on to say in 21, and you who once were alienated or hostile in mind, part of that old kingdom, doing evil deeds, he has now again, reconciled in his body of flesh, Christ was a real man in whom God dwelled. He was the God-man, the hypostatic union, the theologies um, put it. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you. Now, this is what reconciliation does, to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. I find myself intimidated at the thought of standing before God. Knowing all my imperfections, except when I read these verses, I am presented. Holy, blameless, and above reproach before God. What an amazing thing. We have no right or confidence to stand before God except for the reconciliation that's come through the blood of Christ whom we accept as Savior and Lord, and we become reconciled to God. I do notice, though, this is something that Paul does several different times. He says, if, if, and this is his challenge, uh, don't just sit down and not go any further. You've got to continue to walk ahead in this reconciliation. If indeed, important word here, you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Key word, continue. I cannot tell you without grief of the many, many, many people I know that have not continued on with God. My own call to ministry occurred after seeing a a move of God in Bel Air, Maryland, where I was in high school. And at the end of my junior year in high school, seeing 80 or 90 students studying the Bible. And uh, it was amazing. And and being taught by a local Baptist pastor and and we were were getting the goods. I went away for a a month. A backpack trip came back and there were 15 left. And I never saw those other 65, 75 people again, and I was crushed with the fact that people were not continuing, and I made a commitment to God, a vow, I guess. I made a commitment to God. Lord, if you'll show me again the outpouring of your spirit, I will dedicate my life to helping people continue and walk in their faith. I was volunteering for ministry in in the and a year later, in my freshman year of college, I saw an outform of the Spirit again, and I've been in ministry ever since, December of 1972. You've got to continue, continue, continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope. Some of these people fall away because they're, they lack hope. They've lost hope because... This prayer maybe wasn't answered, or that difficulty happened, or, or whatever it might be, or an unanswered prayer, continue. May I just tell you, after 50 years as a Christian, continue. Don't stop. Don't look around you. Continue, 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 and be that person that finishes, as I mentioned earlier. Finally, 24 through 29, such a beautiful Beautiful part of this. I haven't even been looking at my notes. Verse 24 Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Rejoicing in sufferings. And that's kind of a weird statement. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. And it's interesting. He is saying my sufferings are simply part of all the different sufferings that are going to happen in this world to fulfill Christ's mission and to bring the kingdom of God into people's lives. We're all gonna suffer. And there's gonna be a certain amount of suffering that all of us have to pass through. And he says, I'm just filling up my part of that. And he wasn't um, complaining about his sufferings. He wasn't saying, I wish I weren't suffering. He's saying, no, I'm just filling up what's gonna, what has to be as I follow Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. And, and you know, in my life, anything for the church, anything for the body, whatever it takes, that's my delight to do. Even if I suffer in pastoring or whatever it might be, of which I had become, he says, a minister, a servant, according to the stewardship from God, that was given to me for you to make the gospel fully known. Paul used this word stewardship, which we would say today an assignment or a responsibility, that God gave him a responsibility to reach the Northern Mediterranean region and on into uh, Italy. I had a stewardship, he's saying, and how important that I I became a minister because of that stewardship from God that was given to me for you. When Paul became an apostle, he didn't know he'd be ministering to to Colossae, but God had this whole thing set up for Paul. And even though it would be laced with suffering, he was going to plant churches and love on churches and direct churches. A stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the word of God going everywhere possible. The mystery, and this is a word Paul loves to use, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but is now revealed to his saints. Everyone loves a mystery. Everybody loves something that's hidden. And like, what is it? Uh, Where is it? What is is the truth? What's what's real meaning in this world? And he mentions this mystery. Hidden for ages and generations and now this mystery revealed to the saints, verse twenty-seven. To them, the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles. And one of the part of the mystery is that the Gentiles, not just the Jews, would be able to become believers and to become rightly related to God. How great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, drum roll, what is? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That was the mystery. That for both Jews and Gentiles, the Messiah, Christ, would live in us. That's the prize. Christ living in me. That's the mystery. That's the prize. That's the dessert. That's that's the everything. Christ in me, the hope of glory. A hope of living and experiencing God's glory in this world Having a, a glorious church and glorious marriage and family and all the things that are glorious. And then the hope of glory, of course, the glory of God in heaven. And here's a verse, verse 28, that many, many, many pastors have taken as a slogan. I've heard our pastor, Pastor Nate, mention this. Verse 28, him we proclaim. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. Here's the job of a pastor. Pastor. Warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Oh, as a pastor, I long to see people mature. I long to see people grow up and so that then they can go minister to other people, not just receive ministry. We warn and we teach with all wisdom to present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. And the final verse notice the intensity of the words here for this i toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me those are some intense words i toil ministry is is difficult it's not uh, just sitting around between sundays and just sort of hanging out and whatever but he says no 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 i toil Struggling. Sometimes it's different. Different. Sometimes in ministry, it's like you're walking through peanut butter. It's just so difficult. But I toil. I I toil, struggling with all the energy, energy which comes from God, that He powerfully works within me. That's how Paul survived the beatings and the stonings and the shipwrecks and the the criticism and the the. Uh, Complete rejection by uh, his fellow Jews because of the energy and the power that worked in him. You can get through anything if you can, as a steward of God, lay hold of his power. So I want to lead you in a moment into prayer because what I see in this wonderful passage is number one, we've got to keep Christ central. Keep him in the center. Keep him our passion. Number two, to remember, we have been reconciled to God. We're at peace with God. God can move in us because we have been reconciled. And the final thing is keep walking, keep walking, keep walking with him. Don't quit. Don't go into neutral even. Keep it in drive. Keep moving forward. Let me pray for you in this regard. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the message that's so Christ-centered here, that we might keep you, Lord Jesus, in the center. May we, as we study Colossians, fall in love with Christ again. And remember that we are at peace with God. We have been reconciled to God. And when we make mistakes, you are willing to cleanse us again in the blood of Christ, that we might be at peace with God. And finally... Give us steadfastness, endurance, perseverance, a a divine stubbornness to keep walking with you. Thanks for this study. What a pleasure it's been to read this chapter and to share it. Keep us moving ahead, we pray. And thank you for the weeks that will come as we'll even next week study Colossians 2. Thank you, Lord Jesus, in your great name. Amen. God bless you.